titled the second part, uh, The Wences and the Withers of Christian Prey. Uh, and I've subtitled Apostolic Contemplating. Kind of a play on words. Uh, Jesus is a model exemplar of prayer, but the apostles, who are also our uh, ancestors in the faith, they provide templates for us as well. We will have. Okay. So what what do we see in the Book of Acts that might also add to and maybe diversify some of what we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke to provide paradigms, models, or templates for our praying? And we'll see how the apostles contemplated and prayed, and then how, what that might apply for us. Okay. So uh, where where did they pray? When did they pray? In some respects, always praying. Uh, in some respects, at anywhere. And in some respects, everywhere. I mean, so we've already seen, again, what Jesus did. And so this range of characterizations of apostolic praying in the, in the book of Acts probably shouldn't surprise us, right? But let's take them sort of, you know, one at a time. Uh, 114, this is the upper room. It says they were praying constantly. Now, obviously, their praying constantly was... Um, you know, in, in light of waiting for sort of the gift of the Spirit, right? And there was an expectancy about the constant prayer at 114. 242, they prayed again, day to day, from house to house. So this is after the Spirit is poured out. Um, they are breaking bread together daily, from house to house, praying and worshiping. So there's a dailiness to this, a constancy to this, a regularity to this, that everywhere uh, and, and, and all the time this, to this, right? 6-4, um, the apostles are trying to resolve an issue with the widows in the, in the community, and they said, let's appoint some deacons. Why? So that we can devote ourselves to the word and prayer. Sense is, well, we want to try to get back to doing the thing that we really want to commit ourselves to. Um, the deacons can handle administration and those other things. Uh, we we would you know we as the apostolic readers would want to uh, be more be more constant in the prayers that we have been practicing, so to speak. Uh, ten two gives an interesting window outside the immediate apostolic community. Ten at the beginning of chapter ten is we're introduced to a character named Cornelius. I mean, you might recall his name. Um, he's a soldier, a centurion, and ten two tells us this is before he met Peter and uh, met Christ through Peter. He says that. Cornelius also prayed constantly. Right, so here's a God-fearer, somebody who was a Gentile and interested, or at least had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and was constantly praying as well. So we can see in that respect uh, that, that apostolic praying um, was consistent with some of the impulses of Jesus' own praying, the, the all-nightness of that, right? The the regularity of in which he, he went about his own prayer. Uh, there were also some other more rhythmic kinds of praying that we see recorded in the book of Acts. Um, so, for example, um, Acts 3, verse 1, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That 3 o'clock also shows up in 10.30, Peter says, I was praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So, on the one hand, if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you might go to the temple and pray there. Or on the other hand, Peter was on a rooftop at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He was praying there at that time as well. Right? Um, and uh, uh, 
Then in 16, Acts 16, this is uh, right outside of Philippi on the Sabbath day. Luke writes, we, him and Paul, at least, maybe Silas, went outside the gate by the river where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and sat there and spoke to the women who gathered there. So, Sabbath, Sabbath prayer, they went outside the gate, they went to a certain place, there was a place, again, rhythms, routines, right? There was a sort of a constancy to prayer, but there were also some recognized rhythms and routines to prayer as we see that unfolding as well. Um, Luke 1, going back uh, now to prior to Jesus' own pray, uh, Elizabeth and John are indicated as praying at the noon hour. Luke chapter 1. Chapter 2, Anna, the prophetess, says she fasted and prayed night and day, right? So again, this sort of constancy, uh, continuously praying, and yet at regular rhythms and intervals seen both in the Gospel of Luke and then carrying over to the apostles in the book of Acts as well. All right, how about the house? What are some of the postures we see, okay? We've seen the kneeling, right? Jesus kneeled. Um, the kneeling is mentioned a few times when Peter is praying for Dorcas. This is Acts chapter 9. He knelt, it says. Oh, and uh, uh, Paul is addressing the Ephesians before he leaves there in chapter 20. It says that he kneels. When Paul is addressing a group of Christians outside of Tyre in Acts chapter 21, it says that they knelt on a beach. So you can kneel and pray in that respect anyway. The posture of kneeling can be enacted in a variety of different contexts as well. Um, what are some of the practices, accompanying practices? Fasting, right? Anna, we've already mentioned, uh, fasted and prayed. Acts 13, right before Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first missionary journey from Antioch, it says that they were fasting and praying. And it says again in chapter 14 that they were fasting and praying. Uh, there's another account in Acts 16 in Philippi. This was uh, when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail. And when were they praying? At midnight. What were they doing with their praying? They were singing, right? So you see different ways, practices in which prayers are given out uh, in these contexts. And then uh, chapter 28, uh, Paul is on his way to Rome. And uh, in fact, this is on the island of Malta. And he is praying for Publius, who was one of the leaders of the island, who was sick. And Luke records Paul as praying and laying on hand. That's the only instance in the, gospel, in the book of Acts where the laying on of hands accompanies the praying. In this case for, uh, for uh, uh, Publius. Now, um, we, it, it, you know, with, with Dorcas, it doesn't say the hands were laid on. Uh, but with Eutychus, which doesn't record Paul praying, but both of these were, were raised. Well, Peter in, in, with Dorcas uh, is said to have prayed, but it doesn't say what he was doing with his hands. Whereas with Eutychus, it doesn't say that Paul laid hands on him, nor does it say that Paul prayed, but Paul, Paul laid his body over it, right? So, and to assume that Paul prayed as well, although Luke doesn't mention. So, again, there are all kinds of other places as you read through the book of the book of Acts in particular, where you can get a sense for how 
prayers might be manifested in different ways, even when it's not said that explicitly that prayers were made. Um, but so we, we get a, a full range of perspectives here on how uh, praying occurs it occurs in the early apostolic community. Right. Well, the wise. Uh, I want to categorize under the wise and the two and three sort of overarching sort of canopies here. Right. Uh, what do the instances of apostolic prayer tell us about why they pray? Oh, at the first category, I would say would be that praying happens to enable the prayers to receive or accept uh, and to navigate whatever life and life circumstances might bring. Okay? You can kind of say that, that this, these, these occasions of praying uh, get us through the day-to-day. What comes up? The, the, the mundane, the routine. Uh, it gets us through what we do anyway, in some respect. What's some example? So, uh, Acts 124. Uh, we're told that they were praying, in particular now, having Luke just recorded how Judas' life was lost. So the apostles were praying for God's guidance for Judas' replacement. Okay? And they still went and cast lots. The praying was not to avoid casting lots. The casting lots was, the lots were cast with the prayers. So we can, so in other words, the prayer and the casting lots are not opposed to one another, right? Uh, the prayer and casting lots in that case were together. Right, there was a, this was um, a, a, a set of practices they went through to um, attempt to, you know, follow God and that prayer was mentioned specifically in that particular context. Okay. Um, oops, Stephen, second um, In chapter 7, at the very end of Stephen's long message, remember what happened with Stephen? Uh, he unfortunately um, suffered with his life because of some of the things that he was saying. So there's a lot of complications here about, you know, the historicity of all these issues, but... What's interesting is that it says that at the very end, as they were picking up the rocks to stoning, and while they were stoning it, it says that Stephen prayed. And then we so his prayers recorded. Like, Father, I give up my spirit to you. Reminiscent of Jesus' prayer on the cross here. Okay. So it says Luke very specifically records Stephen praying in that cage. Now I think the story would have ended even greater, perhaps, if the angels would have come down and blocked off the rocks and Stephen would have walked out of there just like Paul did in chapter 14 when they were... Remember that other story? <laughs> but that other story doesn't say you pray. <laughs> Go figure, right? <laughs> uh, so Stephen prays literally on his deathbed and into his death. Prayer, in this case, didn't avert this unfortunate series of circumstances. It was something that he did, like Jesus. Jesus' prayer at the cross did not avert his death, right? So, so again, we see here these references to prayer that they were occurring amidst, you know, things that happen in life. We die in life, and we pray on the way to our death, and that's part of what prayer enables 
uh, in these contexts. Chapter 8. Um, remember that interaction with uh, Simon, the sorcerer, and in Samaria, and the apostles, right? And so Simon is praying for, I mean, Peter is praying for Simon, and Simon says, pray for me. All that praying was what? So that I might repent, so that I might also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, prayer and repentance. This prayer did not preclude repentance, it changed with repentance. The, the things that we are invited to do in any case, repent. The prayer goes with that friend. Uh, I'm also reminded in this particular context, Luke chapter 1, again, right before Jesus' public, you know, before Jesus public ministry, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah in 13, in 13 and says to him, your prayers have been answered. What prayers? Prayers in that case, him and Elizabeth had given for years at least, if not decades, regarding not having children. So here were prayers uttered regularly over a long period of time. Right? They are finally answered. So prayer that enables us to receive and accept in Stephen's case when light brings or enables us to navigate. Okay, we've got to cast lots here. Well, let's pray as we're casting our lots in order to uh, be guided by God in these particular instances. On the other hand, there are also a number of accounts in the apostolic narrative where prayers open up to the unexpected surprises of life. Okay? Uh, which in Samaria again. It says specifically, Luke says, Peter and Paul went down to pray for the Samaritans that Samarians that they may receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and then Simon observed what was happening and said, I want the Holy Spirit too. So it's very interesting here that, you know, what exactly did Simon see? The, but yet it says that they went and prayed that these Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the Holy Spirit shows up in whatever way that Simon recommends and wanted also for himself. So some kind of phenomenon, phenomenological manifestation, right? Um, Dorcas, 940. So here's a nice prayer. Kind of prayer that you and I all wish we had more answers like, right? Dorcas, Peter sends everybody out of the room. He prays with Dorcas, and she arises and, or is resuscitated in that particular, particular case. Again, the kind of wonderful surprise that we don't usually expect. But sometimes prayer opens us up to the surprising, the unexpected, right? Um, Peter, in jail in chapter 12, and Rhoda, the servant, and everybody at her house were praying for him. They were praying for him. Remember that story, right? And angel of the Lord gets Peter out of jail. He goes to the house, knocks on the door, and Rhoda says, oh, it's him, and goes in, instead of letting him in. He goes and tells her, you guys are praying for him. He's there. Nah, you're kidding. Okay, we can pray with unbelief, if you will. Not even expecting that our prayers are going to be answered, right? Um, and and we're surprised, and that's what happens in Acts chapter twice. It says that um, they were praying for him, and in this case, um, you know, at least this aspect of the prayer was answered. Again, um, what is what is the is the what is the cause and effect between the singing and praying on the floor of the jail cell at Philippi? 
and the earthquake. Did the earthquake happen because they prayed? Well, again, there's no way to answer these kinds of questions, right? Because all kinds of things happen in part following prayers, but all kinds of things happen following no indication of praying. So drawing any sort of cause and effect relationship between praying and what happens is sometimes a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, problematic, but it's always going to be, I would say, tentative, right? But here's the point. In this case, it does say that they were praying and singing at midnight when the earthquake came. Okay? So sometimes, that's why I'm saying, right? Sometimes unexpected things happen in relationship to this, this praying. Uh, right in the middle of the Mediterranean, Acts 27, storms coming. Remember that story as well, right? And uh, the guards are getting really nervous. They want to kill all the prisoners. And they were praying. They were praying. The sailors were praying. The people in the boat were praying. Prayers were being blown up, praying to who knows God, what gods were, were there. Okay? And lives were saved. Not one life was lost. They find themselves in the Isle of Malta. The unexpected surprises of life that are connected. Uh, in this case, uh, they were landed on an island of barbarians, and the barbarians did not eat them. Thank God, hallelujah. Okay? Um, Acts 28, that of course, then tells us about Publius being restored, as also, apparently, the way where Luke records it, in response to uh, Paul's prayer. So sometimes there seems to be, if you will, God directly answering prayers. Sometimes what happens in light of our prayers are unpredictable and unexpected, but with good and surprisingly welcome results. Okay. And uh, now, on the other hand, third, third, third category, though, um, I do think that for Luke, what's important about prayers is the way in which it helps us to understand how God, the God of Jesus Christ, gives his Holy Spirit to enable his followers to bear witness to Jesus, starting in Jerusalem, going into Judea, and into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was the point of Luke's telling the story of the apostles from the book of Acts, right? So much has been made by my scholars of how the prayers in all of these instances further the uh, advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century, uh, including, for example, um, again, these various prayers that are prayed, right? Uh, Okay, so now what I'm going to show you here, I've already made comments up, but I want you to at least see that these are the actual contents of the prayers recorded in the book of Acts. Okay? Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Cast the lots. That's how it went, right? Um, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's Stephen's prayer. And because, again, it's consistent with Jesus' prayer on the cross. That's why I Cross-reference Luke 23, 45. These are the contents of prayers offered. Tabitha, get up. Dorcas, right? 940. Um, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. So this is Paul before Agrippa in chapter 26. Okay. 
So you can see that these prayers are happening across the narrative, which is the narrative of how the bearing of witness to Jesus Christ advances starting in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Here's a prayer that I think is also significant. This is another, this, the, this is the longest prayer recorded in terms of content. And it's in Acts chapter 4. So this is after uh, they had um, healed the man at the gate, beautiful, in Acts chapter 3, on the Sabbath. And then, you know, got thrown into prison, spent all night there. And then they were released and warned not to be, you know, doing those kinds of things anymore. And Peter and John and Nick also said, well, you know, um, we've got to listen to God rather than, than human beings, right? So when they heard, they raised their voices together to God and said, so here's the content of the prayer to record in Luke chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles range and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers and gathered together against the Lord and against him was silent. For in fact, for this city, for in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and people of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined take place. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your with all, your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's the prayer. And the result, Luke says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with bowls. A couple of things here I want to just highlight here um, relative to the content of the prayer, right? So you notice here that they are in their prayers. Now again, you know, Luke is telling the story. Luke tells us that it's not like they had recordings back in the day with and then you know Luke went and listened to the recordings on the on their cassette tapes and you know he was an interview with some people and so Luke is developing the story. But here's the point I'm trying to make, right? That however it actually happened in this case, uh, Luke gives us a model of how the praying is the praying of scripture itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Notice how they are praying David's prayers in the book of Psalms, right? So scripture itself is now a means of prayer and provides us with a template or or content for our praying in that respect, okay? And so, um, second, you know, and of course this prayer was um, prayed in a very, very specific set of circumstances of challenges, of uh, opposition, of resistance. Resistance to what? Resistance to the gospel going from Jerusalem into Judea. We're in this sort of, uh, you know, transitionary phase here between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapters, uh, Acts 2 and 3 and 4, 5 and 6, where the Judean countryside becomes engages with what's happening within the broader community. And, of course, then um, at the end, um, the result is consistent with Luke's recording of Jesus' example of praying the Lord's Prayer, why? So that you can, re- so can you can receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit shows up for what reason? To enable the disciples to persist in what they were supposed to do, which is bear witness to Jesus, right? So all of this uh, is consistent with Luke's purposes of narrating his story of um, the 
continue to advance up the gospel. All right. So from this perspective, I think we are able to catch up a little bit. Here's a few discussion questions again for your tables. So what is it about the apostles praying? When they prayed, where they prayed, how they prayed, that might encourage or not our understanding and practice of prayer to Boadilia? Kind of a similar question to how we looked at Jesus earlier. Uh, what are the pros and cons of praying for, I'm going to use language, supernatural interventions in response to our life circumstance? So think about, again, the pleasant and surprising outcomes that we saw, right? Um, yeah. So let's talk about, you know, do we pray for those kinds of pray for those kinds of uh, outcomes? So what are the pros and cons of praying specifically for these kinds of responses from God? And finally, I want us to also think about we see prayer in Book of Acts consistently related to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ability of the disciples to bear witness, right? So here's the last question I'll ask you. What does vocational prayer look like in light of apostolic narrative? What I mean is, again, we, we oftentimes think of prayer very personally for our needs, right? But how do we pray in relationship to the advance of the gospel? That's now your and my vocation as disciples of Jesus today. Right, so what is the apostolic narrative about prayer? How does that shed light on 